You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, the running public. We're not messing around today. I pushed the button and no time to think, Bracken. We're just doing today. I've been I've been yearning for some Kirk DeWint in my life. It's been a whole week since we've actually chatted because of the holiday. Yeah, we both went our separate ways, got out away from people. Well, not all people, but... <laughs> general populace and then we didn't record on tuesday which made my week feel all sorts of screwed up yeah it's just you know we always come back to each other though bracken we can never seem to right. you know, diverge if you love something set it free but then take it back and it comes we're, we're like boomerangs for each other kirk homing pigeons maybe homing pigeons homing <laughs> pigeons what uh so you were up north with uh the the kids and the family is that right yes it was more like we were up east oh sorry up west up west you were, you were up west yeah 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 we went to lake arbutus it's pretty awesome never heard of it but i saw a lot of pictures from your wife lisa she likes to take those pictures she does a good job when my memory fades someday i'll just be able to look back at all her pictures she's taken throughout the years i say the same thing about jess it was our first trip with the camper Mm-hmm. And we experienced all four seasons. Yeah. Yeah. Got down to 29 one night. We had a uh, driving rainstorm, a bit of hail, uh, 85 one day. We got it all. Yeah. The start of your trip was cold. It was. The first day, the kids were in winter jackets and hats running around the beach. And then the next day, they were in the water playing in the lake. I'm surprised they weren't playing in the water on the winter hats day. Kids are wild that way. They are. They were. They were ankle deep that day. Yeah, yeah, you just can't wait. You got to get in that water, man. What about you? Oh, I've been, uh, I'm closing on my new house tomorrow, which would be, well, today, technically, when you're listening to this. Um, so a week was, I was getting everything ready. I've had random creepy people over at my house pretty much every day because I'm selling stuff on Facebook Marketplace. So it's just uh, been yeah. like a conga line of weirdos coming in to look, to look at my stuff. And so I don't have a I don't have a kitchen table. I don't have, I sold my bass boat because I'm getting a new one. I sold a moped I had you sold in your my bass garage boat. forever. I got a new one. You on sold your bass boat. boat? Yeah, I know it's a big deal. Well, that's been a part of you for how long? You know what the funny thing is, is I bought that bass boat back in 2006. It was an old used one. I took out my first post-collegiate loan. I had to take out a loan for this boat. It was $5,200 in 2006. Sold it on Facebook Marketplace. For $5,200 in 2021. That's where the market's at. I didn't depreciate it all. Somebody, first guy, 30 minutes in, sent me a message, came over, handed me cash, and was like, thank you. That was it. Think of the memories that you that you sent down the river with that boat. Think of all the new ones I'm going to make in my sweeter boat, Bracken. This is a big purchase year for you. Lake house, new bass boat. Yeah. If you're going to live on the lake, you might as well have the boat you want. So here's the deal with Kirk. For anyone who doesn't know Kirk, Kirk doesn't spend money very often, but when he does, he doesn't blink. He just throws money at the problem and he gets exactly what he needs. And right now he doesn't wait for a sale. He doesn't compare anything. He gets the best option of whatever it is he needs. And he just buys it that moment. How do you know this about me? Cause it's so true. 
It is. I mean, since we've been together as a couple, Kirk, <laughs> yeah, you've purchased very few things in your life. It's true. But one of them was a truck, yep. which you just went there and gave them the money and took the truck you wanted that day. I don't got no time for debt, Brack, and I pay straight cash. If I don't have the money, I'm not buying it. Exactly. And that's what I that's what I respect about you. You don't spend your money until you do, and then you you take it right now. When when you're when you needed a laptop the other week, <laughs> you hadn't bought a computer. You have the oldest computer I know of anyone trying to run a podcast. Come on. You do. And then boom, you just went out and you just said, uh, that's the that's the most expensive MacBook right there. That's the one I'm getting. Boom. Yeah. Give me it. Give me that. One. No research. That's it. Listen, I had 15 minute window. I had to get in and out back. And yeah. So you don't spend money and then you earn the right to spend your money exactly how you want it, but you have no patience. As soon as you need it, it's it's in there. Time is money. I don't got time futzing on my phone and computer research and getting the reviews, mad Nancy and Karen at one company and one product. And then I get all mixed up in my head. I'm a, I buy from the heart bracket. So I, I, I say all this to say that I bet this is a very nice bass boat you have coming. It's used. It's one of my buddies that he, uh, that he's, I've already been in and I know, and it's, it's an upgrade. It's not the best, but it's better than what I had. So there's time, but that's it. So me, so that's it. And, uh, that's why we were busy this weekend, folks. Sorry about that. We, I had stuff going on. Bracken was putting family first, which is the best thing to be doing. And so we're giving you one episode this week. You know how people always say, you never know they're the good old days until they're in the past. Or it's, you never know you're living the good old days while you're living them. Mm -hmm. This weekend, there were several times where we just kicked back and realized these are the good old days right here. What were the moments? The kids just like paired off and sprinting up and down the, the beach or paddling on the kayaks and when they don't know you're watching and they're just being awesome with each other, all the cousins getting along, no one fought. You just realize that these are the moments those kids are going to look back on. When you hear people say, oh, I have the best memories of my childhood are from camping or oh, the, the getaway weekends with our cousins. Or we, we realized it was apparent in the moment that these are the good old days. And it's very rare that you get the realization and appreciation of that while it's actually happening. So it was a great weekend. Was it the good old days for them and you, or maybe just them? What do you think? Well, certainly for them, but that mm -hmm. makes it fantastic for us. And then because they, they get along so well, there's a cousin at pretty much, each cousin pretty much has a pair at their old, at their same age, except for the oldest and youngest. And even that's only a two-year gap. So everyone's paired up. Everyone's got a partner the whole time. And that means that, I mean, they're all so self-sufficient. You didn't have to parent a whole lot, which allowed the adults to have one of the good old, good old day <laughs> weekends as well. So it all fed off each other. Mommy and daddy got to drink some running public craft beer around the fire or something like that. Kirk, we're coming up on a year since I've had access to running public craft beer. Yeah, I don't have any more either, Jay. Jay, if you're listening, it's that time of year, man. You made our year last summer. Just say we're gonna we're gonna have to hold another beer mile just to, to guilt him into to sending some more out. And it's such a good beer too. That's the thing. It's not like we slapped a running public label on like a cheap domestic beer. This is like the real deal craft beer. So yes, Jay. Hey Jay, just reminding you that we're over here. Jay, give him a shout out to his company, North Pier Brewing. North Pier Brewing out of Michigan. We're in Michigan, somewhere in Michigan. Yeah, it was pretty awesome. Yeah. Should we um should we talk about what we're going to talk about today? What we're doing today? Yeah. Today is a an extended abbreviated Q and A. That doesn't make any sense, Bracken. Kirk, we're all about not making sense. It We only have a few questions, but they all require in-depth conversations. 
They're they're all the type that we could maybe swing a training Tuesday out of them, but it'd be stretching it. And we could maybe hit it in just a few minutes, but it wouldn't be doing them justice. So we kind of have our our high flying questions today. So we're not going to do a lot of them, but we're going to give real conversation on each of them. Yeah, usually we do our Q&A episodes on a Friday because they're longer and training Tuesday would be a specific topic, but we're almost going to do like mini training Tuesday segments and mash yeah. them together since we didn't give you something this week. A mini series. In one episode, which isn't In one mini- episode. That's not a mini series. Is that a mini series? <laughs> no, no, it's not. <laughs> you want to kick it off? I do want to kick it off. And it's not um, it's not a formal question that has come in, but um, this is a big one. And that, Bracken, it's honestly, come up it, a lot. It's come up a lot. And I feel a little foolish that we haven't addressed it in a real training Tuesday yet because everybody deals with this next question. Yes. And so, um, and that is training and purposeful training while traveling. And that's traveling for work or maybe for pleasure. I have an athlete, Matt. Uh, Matt's a stud. Matt, this question was spurred by you. And Matt recently did a high rocks uh, down in Texas. And he's living such a life that he travels for work every week. And he's in different hotel rooms and making stuff work and flip-flopping workouts and running on no sleep. And like, I just really got an admiration for how this guy goes through his life. And he got into high rocks like late the night before or something. But the problem was, is that he had to make sure he got done in time because if he didn't cross the finish line and get in his car to go to the airport, he wouldn't have made his flight, which was also incentive to run fast. And anyways, there's people out there living these lives. And he said, like, how the heck do I do this? Somehow we manage, he manages it all, but it's not perfect and it's not without its hiccups. And so I thought we should talk about like where priorities fall when you're traveling or you're not in your ideal training grounds, when your schedule is disrupted and when things are out of your control. Because we all deal with that at times. You were just on a vacation for Memorial Day. I've been in a shitstorm of a life trying to manage closing a house and selling one and managing everything. So um, point being is it's worth talking about. And we haven't talked about it yet. No. And I think there's, I mean, there, there's several types. You have the, the traveling to a race if you decide to road trip. Then you have the vacation. Then you have the work trip. And then you have the extended time away. And they all kind of require different different setups. They do. I think what what we should do is we should start with um, the consistent work travel person or the one who is like the one who's traveling at least intermittently for work. And it's always a pain and you're like entertaining somebody from the company and you're like, I don't know when we get together, it's always dinner after work and and then you get stuck and your workouts don't happen. So I think we should talk about the consistent traveler first. Mm -hmm. I've, I've dealt with a few of these in the past and I've done two different styles of of coaching or training with that. And the first is, it's kind of the choose your own adventure route where we list two to three runs that are non-negotiable for the week. And then two to three strength sessions. And they just kind of sit in columns. We have a speed column, a medium long run column. And then we have like a, a, a compromised workout, like one big circuit that you could do in a hotel. And then we have a power um, strength session. If he has, if he can drop into a CrossFit gym or, or get to, he has a, some, he had, this guy had a, a, a nationwide membership, but they're not in every city for gyms kind of thing. And then also a body weight that you can just do in the hotel room. And then another cert, like a Metcon style that you can get by with just dumbbells and a, a med ball that a lot of hotels have. And so he'd have s- five to six workouts sitting there per week. And basically he'd, he'd pick a la carte as something opened up. 
And he was a guy that could exist off that where he had a good sense of how to structure his training. And he knew if I get in early, boom, I'm plugging in my longest run workout and I'm hitting that right away. And the next morning I'm getting my upper body strength. And then I may have two or three days of just flux. And then after that, I'm going to plug in my speed work. The next opportunity I have, I'm just hitting the hotel treadmill and I'm hitting my speed workout day. And then if I have time, I'm going to hit my long circuit workout with running up and down the hotel stairs and, and doing body weight stuff. So he was able to just have a list of workouts that he needed to hit each week and each month and plug them in at first opportunity prioritized based off what race he was coming up with. But that takes a that takes a specific type of athlete who has some real good drive to pull off. Well, I'd say most athletes that are trying to train when they travel do in some capacity. So, I mean, the thing is, is, you know, you know, when we coach Bracken, we write workouts in a certain order each week because there's method to our madness and we want them to perform, recover, perform again, recover. And Traveling when you don't know what the schedule is going to leave you, that's the one exception. It's list out the priority workouts. I have three a week that I would just like you. And it's, I don't care if they're back to back, if that means getting them done this week. I don't care. Like as long as they get done, we're going to mitigate damage and and we're going to be no worse off for it most likely. Will it be perfect? Would a long run before your quality day take away from it? Probably, but it's significantly better than just throwing your hands to the wind and missing it. Now, now I have a, a very um, interesting. I don't think you'll 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 agree, maybe or expect my take on this, but okay. this is my take on this. If you're traveling and you're one who gets stressed with traveling and fitting it all in, and I don't know if I want to work out on my normal schedule when I'm traveling. Mm. That's the whole thing too, right? Like desire in a sense. I'm on vacation with the family, or I know how stressed I get at work and their long days and the traveling and living out of a suitcase, and I just don't want to go find a gym. I just don't. It's going to ruin my week. You lose strength gains significantly slower than you lose cardio or high-end output and put in biomechanical efficiency. So if you're stressed, priority number one, and I'm a strength guy, toss the strength workout, screw it, gone. Take that off, that stressor off your plate because you can take two weeks off of lifting, go back to the gym, and you're going to have 99% of your strength still there. You take two weeks off of running and go back to a quality workout, you know how it's going to feel like shit. So right away, if it's a stressor for you, strength done. Don't worry about the hotel gym. Don't worry about stupid body weight circuits in your hotel. Don't worry about bopping in a CrossFit class. Chuck them because the gym will be there next week. I know that seems like a crazy take coming from a gym guy, but we don't lose strength progress nearly as quickly as running progress. So if we're going to pick and choose, that's my first choice right there. Can I do it all? And if I can't, what needs to go? Boom, out. For me, even when I travel, that's how I start. How do you feel about that, Bracken? I feel like we're 140 episodes in and I just thought of something for the first time. Okay. How many times are you in a consistent strength block? You step away for a week or two weeks, come back and hit a PR on a lift. All the time. Where if you step away for two weeks, you might not physiologically lose running fitness, but your first workout back, you feel like you've never run before. It takes two or three workouts to get back just in the groove. Your fitness might be there, but you just feel terrible. Whereas lifting, as long as you get a good warm up in, you can PR off of like 10 to 12, 14 days of no lifting. Mm-hmm. Where running, you're not going to PR sitting still for 14 days. Correct. But I've never really in those in those lines, I've never thought about that, Kirk. So thank you. I'm just compartment- compartmentalizing it because it's true. 
And so oftentimes when I'm vacationing or I'm traveling, I say, you know what? Like, I'm not going to enjoy me using the 25 pound dumbbells in the hotel anyways. Screw it. I've earned hard, worked hard to have a base of strength, but that's the first thing that goes. And this, the exception is, let's say my athlete, Matt, who travels every week, you can't do that week in and week out. So it's not like, a, right. oh, I'm never going to do strength work because I'm always on the road. That's not what I'm talking about. But if you're looking like, I want to spend more time with the family on vacation, or I want to do this, but still get my training in, I think it's an easy decision. But yeah. that's, that's just where my head is at with that. You continue to surprise me, Kirk. And how do you feel about that, Bracken? It's reassuring. I like it. Yeah. I like it. Because because the danger of, of, of bloviating about topics week in and week out is that you entrench yourself in that topic. Mm-hmm. And and I like seeing that the blinders are off. So then there, there's a second type of athlete that I've worked with. And this woman represents a lot of us. And she was a planner. The idea of having an a la carte style pull from the drop down and plug it in was stressful to her. Sure. So we had the opposite approach, which was every single time. And she traveled twice a month for work. The week leading up to it was always identify what gym she's getting to on Friday and what trail system she's hitting for Saturday workout. Every single city, you just we went on all trails and the mountain bike project and searched for the best possible trail. And if there was, was none, then you move down to bike paths. And if there's nothing of that, then we found a state or county park where she could just run loops around on the grass. And if there was not, almost every city has something like that. But if it was really in a place where there just wasn't anything like that, then it was a specific treadmill plus stairwell workout or one or the other in isolation, depending on where she was in training. But she had specific workouts plugged in. She had two to three locations specified before she even got on her plane. And all the rest were plugged in. If you have time for it, get a shakeout run in, get an easy run, sit on the recumbent bike, go pool run for 30 minutes. She had the a la carte of recovery options to plug in, but she had her long workout and her drop in at a gym specified for every city she ever traveled for because that that calmed her mind knowing I ha- no matter what happens on this trip, I know Saturday morning I'm here and Friday afternoon this is where I am. I love that. Planning ahead. It's not that complicated, but nobody really does it as often as they should. It seems stressful. It's not if you have the time before you travel. What's stressful is sitting in your hotel bed, scrolling through all trails, trying to figure out where to go, spending 45 minutes of the time you need to be working out, and then being like, now it's too late. I can't even get there. Yep. I like that. And that's how I travel. I get on all trails, and then I just go on Strava. And I, I type in the name of the place I'm going, or I'll just zoom in on the city and you just look for segments where there are segments, there are running routes. And, and if you're, and, sorry to interrupt. I was just going to say, if you're not familiar with all trails, it's just an app, A-L-L trails and little green icon. And I, it's my crutch when I travel to places. Yeah. Um, and all trails has little city parks on it. It has inner city bike paths. It has you know, the elevation profile, distances, rating of trails. So it has paved to gnarly mountain trails. Um, All trails is a great tool. Even in my neighborhood, I'm moving a half an hour away from where I currently live. I've been scoping all trails constantly. Even in your current city, all trails can help you discover new stuff. So anyway, just a plug for that app because it's huge when you're traveling. It is. I use three apps and all trails has a website as well. I use all trails, I use Strava, and then something called the Mountain Bike Project. It has a companion, the trail running project, I think, but the Mountain Bike Project is just more fleshed out. And you know if there's mountain bike trails that 
it's trails. There's a trail system you can find. Whereas trail runners just, I feel like there's the mountain bike project is a very, very intense community. They, mm-hmm. they all flock to the same trails cause there's just not the availability. So they all work together. So it's a well fleshed out app, but those three, that's where I go. And I, and I, I search and I found trails in my, like you said, my own hometown, my go-to easy and recovery day trail right now, I've lived near my entire life. And I didn't know it was there because it was invisible, that's but wild. mountain bikers cleared it out themselves and they maintain it themselves. And, and that's where I go now. That's fantastic. But that's how I travel. I get ahead and I scope out several spots. So I know I have these options. I mean, we did that before we went down to Jacksonville. Yeah. I sent you here. This is where I think we should run. And you looked at another one and we ended up choosing based off all trails, a place we were going to go and do our shakeout run the night before. Yeah. So clutch, so clutch. But to, to sort of like summarize that, I agree with you on like, um, you know, even recovery runs, although they're very important, if you don't have the time, your three quality days, if you don't do your recovery runs in between them, you might feel a little clunky on your quality days and that's okay to feel clunky while you're traveling. No big deal. It's just going to set you up to not miss a beat as far as any high end performance and standard goes. So yep. even if you can get three runs in that week and one's an interval, one's a chase and vert and one's a long run or whatever you, however you set it up, you're going to maintain everything. You, you can't lose it in a week. So even if you nixed all your strength work, nixed all your recovery runs and said, I'm going to do three workouts this week, but I'm going to make them count. That's, that's as bare bones as I like to, to get it. I don't know about you, but, um, and then, and then the other thing just to address, and this is just sort of reminding you of the obvious, but uh, mornings are your only option and getting it done before the day gets in the way. Even if that means you only get four hours of sleep because the work party goes out and gets dinner and drinks every night and you come home exhausted over the weekend, but you did what you needed to do on that work trip. I'm going to say that that's worth it no matter what versus prioritizing sleep in a short term instance. It's just what you got to do if you care about your fitness. So that's my other two cents I wanted to add in there. Yeah. And that the work party thing is the tricky part. And what I have personally learned throughout the years is no one notices the person that switches to water halfway through the night. Mm-hmm. No one really notices. And, and really we're all adults. We shouldn't feel socially compelled, but when you're doing the client work thing, your job is to make the client feel however you need them to feel in order to close that relationship. So I understand it, but The difference between the last two hours of the night continuing your drinking versus the last two hours of the night switching to water or, you know, seltzer water or something is a massive difference the next morning when you go for your run. And when you add work trip to work trip to work trip, those those four or five extra drinks every single weekend, they change you physically. Yeah, they do. And if you're like me, I'm comfortable being like, hey, guys big deal to me. I'm a, I'm an endurance athlete. And so I'm going to call it short at 10 o'clock tonight. Cause I got to run in the morning and most reasonable human is going to be like, cool, man, like totally great. Don't worry about not being part of the, the social club or obligated to do it. And now everybody in my life knows I go to bed at nine o'clock. And if you text me after, you're not going to get a response. Cause that's my way. And if I say no to a social occasion on Friday night, it's cause I got a long run in the morning on Saturday. And if you can establish that precedence and just mm-hmm. own it, you're going to be better off for it too. And you're going to find like-minded people out there. A lot of the, having been on the other side of, of the, the, the table, you're as the client or as the person who's being wooed, sometimes you're mirroring their behavior as much as they're mirroring yours. And there have been several times where you find out, Oh, you're a runner too. Like we might just both scrap this at nine 30 tonight. And 
and head out for a run together tomorrow morning or meet up for a bike or a buddy workout at their local gym. There's more of us out there than you think, but we, we don't all look the same in our business clothes. We don't, you don't say, Hey, that, that person's a runner or that's a triathlete because we all Mm -hmm. come in different shapes and sizes. Sometimes that bridge is just waiting to be discovered. Yeah, that's true. Last thing I want to add to that, and then we'll move on to our, uh, formal questions, I believe, unless you have more you want to add is just um, planning to get ahead of it. If for some reason you have the luxury and and you know you're on the way out, well, you can rearrange your week prior schedule to maybe squeeze in your quality workout on Sunday to get ahead of it. Um, you know, again, moving parts out of place. But if that means getting it done versus not, then then I think that's an okay situation to do that as well. No, you're and you're exactly right that the the you have to prioritize it earlier in the day because those days and weeks they just slip away from you when you're on business. And then you're tired and you're cranky and you're putting out fires or even on vacation a lot of times, you know, somebody has too many drinks or the heat gets to you or your kids need too much attention and then suddenly you're like I don't got it. So, getting ahead. And you good. don't want you don't want to be the person who's always slipping away at the wrong time. No. Nope. People people respect working out and, and, uh, having hobbies, but it has to happen where it's acceptable. Mm-hmm. And when you don't prioritize it early, it turns into you're missing something to do it later. And you're right. Even on vacation, you don't want to be the person who every day at 2 PM disappears right in the middle of someone's prepping for lunch or cleaning up after something or move into the next stage. So uh, last thing I want to talk about is actually traveling long distance to races. Okay. Cause I think it's something that gets screwed up a lot. Uh, The first is when you drive long distances, the more you can stop, the better, but it's always seductive to just try to power through and get there faster. But stopping at rest stops and gas stations, there has to be movement every time. If you want to be at your best, I've done the 16 hour travel the day before a race. I've done it and I've raced well off of it, but it only happens when you treat your body with respect during it. And that means... I try to stop no further than two to two and a half power hours apart. And I do some amount of body movement, just even just walking and, and light lunges or light jogging in between at every rest stop. And then once you get there, the longer you've traveled, I have realized through trial and error, the less important it is and the more damaging it is to take any amount of impact once you arrive. But the okay. more important it is to get blood flowing. So when you fly two hours down to a race, you can land and go for a shakeout run immediately. You could run down a hill and be fine. If you fly 10 hours or drive 15, going for a run can leave you sore. Doing any amount of downhill or stairs can leave you actually kind of destroyed. Even a workout you would normally not notice. The longer you stay stationary and the more the blood pools, the more damaging that workout becomes. And I screwed up on that a couple times traveling to Dubai the first time. Uh, doing a, my first 15 or 16 hour car ride, just running downstairs in the hotel. I did a couple of stair reps. My calves were so sore the next day and I had been doing stairs all year. It's just the longer things pool and sit inactive, the more they're susceptible to damage to impact. Well, and it's not as much about, let's say like our blood doesn't necessarily pool. Maybe it be water retain in our lower extremities or whatever, but but all those uh, fascia and muscles and connective tissue do get pretty tight if we don't use them. And you think when we sleep at night, which is stagnancy, we're not sitting with bent leg positioned in a cramp. We're moving and our legs are out straight. And and you know how tight you feel in the morning sometimes when you wake up. And that's off a body that's allowed to be elongated while it's laying there. Now you put yourself in a tight airplane or in a car 
and all those attachments are shortened. Everything, your hamstrings and glutes in particular, your rear mm -hmm. chain in particular. And so all that stuff just gets tight and needs to be reworked. And let's say that to your testament, if you were to go out and hit a hard workout on a body that really isn't quite as elastic as it normally is, what's going to happen is those muscle fibers are going to tear on a minute level, which is muscle soreness. It's going to cause damage. And so that's really what we're talking about is like, there's a difference between sleeping for eight hours and being still and sitting in a position in which your muscles are actually in a, in a shortened state. And that's, that's kind of the harm. And then you go feel tight and unfluid and, and that's the reason why. So I agree with you completely for that reason, mainly. Yeah. I, it was mind blowing to me the first time my go-to pre-race shakeout was like 10 to 15 minutes of light stair running up and down to shake out after a flight. And then the next day I go for a run because I didn't feel like running, but thought short little choppy steps up and down is fine. And I did that for a year or two. And then I flew to Dubai and did it and my calves were destroyed. And mm. I realized it hits differently when you've been stationary bent leg for that long. So my rule is that the longer I go, the more I spend doing other things before I'm allowed to run or take impact once I land. And yeah. I personally don't let myself run at all until all lower leg swelling is gone. Cause I'm, I'm a lower leg sweller when I, when I travel long distance. But that night, that night I land, I am perfectly happy with pool running or, or just getting on the spin bike or the elliptical. I do not need to be running because again, you can't change your fitness the night before. Yep. Those are great. That's a great point. I'm glad you talked about all that. I, I also, if I'm looking at like a cross country flight, four and a half hours or more, I consider I'm usually trying to pay extra book that front row where I can actually extend my legs in that, like the, still the working class area, but like. You know, I take a middle seat in that row if I can straighten my legs out on the flight versus an outsider uh, window seat back in the plane where I can't. So I always I think about those things, too. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This, this weekend, I'm flying two and a half hours and I don't care when I fly out to California. I pay extra for the emergency row or whatever row I can get. Where are you going this weekend, Bragging? Uh, High Rocks, Orlando. You're racing? No, you're commentating. No, Wait, I'm, I'm racing this one. Michelle Aiken is a, a girl I work with, and she and I are going to do mixed doubles. Come on. Yeah. Bracken, I remember we're a couple. You're supposed to tell me these things. Well, you know, I it slipped my mind because in my mind, I'm not racing. I'm supporting Michelle. Uh, you're going to be working pretty hard, Bracken. Well, I'm going to be working hard, but it, it never felt like my race. Whenever I don't know how often people who work with athletes out there get to do this, but I find it extremely valuable to get out on course with someone that you train. It's one mm -hmm. thing to hear their feedback from a workout or a race. And it's another thing to see the way they work through adversity, how they look when they're working hard, how they transition and how they look when they're trashed. And that really changes. I feel like the depth of their relationship, coach athlete afterwards, A, you bond through pain. Yes, but B, you, you understand a little bit more or a lot a bit more what they really need in training. So Michelle was looking to do a tune-up before nationals in Chicago. And so she said she wanted to do a doubles event so she could work extra hard and then get those little breaks. So I said, hey, I'll, I'll swing down there. Ah, and it's a good tune-up for you too to get put back in that environment. So yeah, sweet. Yeah, it'll, it'll be a lot of fun. Awesome, man. Um, are you comfortable moving on? You ready to you, anything else you want the people to know about traveling? Comfortable and moving on. All right. Um, I'll start with one just because I have it pulled up and then we can go back. Actually, Kirk, I'm going to cut line. You had your long one. I have one long one that I feel is worth discussing. Again, aren't we a couple here, Bracken? I didn't know this either. Well, this morning, Lisa and I sat on the porch swing for about 20 minutes and I dumped my purse out in her lap. I don't know what that means from man to woman, but... You're just dumping all your emotions and feelings out. 
Okay. You just dump right. your purse out. Was it one of those you needed that this morning? I didn't know it, but it's we I, we drove a lot this weekend. Probably drove for eight or nine hours, and that's a lot of time to think, Kirk. You know what I think when I think of you driving a long time? All I think are wet Lunchables being mushed in mouth <laughs> in the backseat. Wet cheese and wet meat. Just mushing in mouths. Do you know what we didn't bring on this trip? Lunchables. <laughs> Lunchables. <laughs> Go to the Uncrustables. They're a little more inviting. Oh, we brought Uncrustables. All right. I'm happy. Okay. Well, I got a question from someone earlier this week. And darn it if it didn't just like pull my thumb out of the wall and let the, the flood out. He said, what do you do when you're in a slump? with training. God, that simple question. Uh, and so I dumped my purse out on Lisa's lap this morning for 20, 30 minutes, just venting about I'm in a slump. And I, Lisa said, you know what? You should just address that person's question and, and get your therapy session with Kirk all in one because everyone goes through slumps. Yeah. So what do you do when you're in a slump in training? Um, that's a great, it's a great question. And it's probably one of the harder ones to answer that you can have because it, it's based so much on the individual. There's the philosophy of action fuels more action, meaning just suck it up and go through the motion and keep, keep putting your foot to the flame and eventually it will feel more action. They, they say motivation doesn't start like, oh, I'm so motivated. Now I'm going to do it. That's not how yeah. it works. It says you're going to start to do something and then the motivation follows because of action and consistency. There's one school of thought. And then the opposing school of thought is, well, obviously you could be burnt out or overtrained and things are too much and you actually should step away completely and take a hard reset. So, and then there's every version in between. So I'm an extremist. So I think it should be maybe one side or the other. For me, if I'm in a training slump, it usually means I need to either race, time trial, or walk away completely for a couple of weeks and come back to it. That's just me. Those are all the things I say to people. It's either time to put more intensity in, jump into something, or identify a big, exciting race or goal that excites, thrills, or scares you. And now you have no choice but to script out a training plan. But this person who messaged and myself, none of that moves the needle for us right now. I... What, what, what have I done in the last year, Kirk? I chose an exciting race goal, excited me for a bit, tore my calf in the middle of beginning of that race, came out this other side aimless. Like, what, what's even the point? Then I had knee surgery. I had five or six weeks totally off of running because of the calf. I've had my time away. Mm -hmm. Kind of lit the fire. It's not smoldering too hot. Did the choose a big race in the future, looking ahead, like maybe I go train for Tahoe and try to qualify for Dubai or I don't know, nothing really moves the needle. And, and I'm stuck in between that place where part of me says, choose something even bigger and go after it. And part says, I think that's part of the problem. I'm living big goal to big goal without any chaining consistency together. It's like, do, do so a bunch of, of cramming and get ready for something big and not be totally well-rounded in the fitness. And then you take time off because you're so beat afterwards. And then you choose the next one, but there's not the day in, day out consistency. The goals are sustaining you, but the process is disjointed. You know, it, it's, it's just that melodramatic, I'm in the doldrums, nothing moves the needle stage. What do you do? Well, uh, that's the trickiest of them all. So I understand the predicament. And this athlete you said is in the same boat. Similar. They went into less detail, but that's the vibe I got off of it. I know they've raced. 
I know they don't struggle with getting workouts in. They just don't care right now to get workouts in. Say, I know it long-term, I need to stay in shape. And I know I'll probably want to race again at some point, but the idea of going out for a run or a lift or doing a compromised run or a long run, just, I don't know, doesn't, doesn't do much for me right now. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you what, that's a very non-egotistical and relatable of you to talk about with yourself. I feel like that's like not, I don't know, if somebody's a hosting a running pup podcast, I think that's like a tough yeah. thing to, to, to talk it's hard about. to admit because we're supposed yeah. to have this figured out. That's part of why I said I'm going to do that full compromise run thing all summer because it was something to, it was a reason to go run. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> I have this conversation a lot with unmotivated clients in the gym. Typically our athletes are fairly motivated in a general sense, our athletes we coach, but in the gym, a lot of times people hire a personal trainer as the fix, but really you need to fix yourself, right? Ultimately the trainer is only going to provide external motivation, not intrinsic. So I always tell them like, you know, it, it, it comes back to your why Bracken and it comes back to figuring out and getting in touch with that. And so if you're unmotivated, it's like time to take a hard look in the mirror again and say, why? And, and that's a tough one to answer, but it starts there. I hate to say it. It starts there. And then if you say, I don't know anymore or X, Y, and Z, like, obviously there's some self-reflection that needs to be done. And it all comes down to the why it always does. Well, I, I know my why right now. And I talked through it with Lisa and it doesn't help me. Mother F Bracken, you're making this hard for me. My, I mean, my personal why, and, I th and the reason I want to discuss this, and I think a lot of people can relate to this, is that I train to race. And you don't train to take second place. Either. No, and I, and I only, not only, but for many years, I only went out the door for workouts, so I'd be prepared for races. And so as long as I had consistent races, my training cycles always chained together. Even back in college, it was cross or it was indoor track or it was outdoor track and then I was getting ready for cross. So it always masked that underlying problem with me, which is that all I cared about was competition and training was a means to an end. But then injury hits and COVID hits. And there are a lot of people that you talk to out there who are like, yeah, I just, I'm just competitive. There's a ton of leases out there who will train every day of their life and never need to compete because that's just what stokes their fire. I will train every day of my life when there are races looming. And so what do people like me do when races have been reduced and the ones that are there don't move the needle and, or you go through injury and you realize, huh, suddenly all the cracks in my why appear, which is, I just want to race and win, but there are no races that excite me and I haven't trained enough. Now I can't win. What, why do I train? And then let's say, a race is coming up, but you know you can't be ready in time to do great at it. So are you motivated to race when you're not there? So do you say, okay, do I just scrap the rest of the season and be ready for next year? But that leads to doing that again the year after that. Because now it's, you can only show up. This is what Hunter talked about. Then you get in that pattern of, I'm not going to show up until everything is perfect. And everything is never going to be perfect. So now you're in that downward spiral of every year, it's easier and easier to, to find a reason, well, I'm, my fitness isn't perfect. I'm not ready for this race. And suddenly, if you can't win, you don't show up rather than I'm going to show up and, and give it my best. So it, it feels like things snowball when your motivation is predicated around one finite thing. Well, this is what you do is in that case, then you shove it down your throat. Um, you, you don't have a choice. Um, you need to commit to races and a series and a plan, and then 
you show up whether it's the last thing you want to do that week or not. And you're going to find out, you're going to say, am I falling out of love with this? And it still hasn't moved my needle or I have gotten the ball rolling, gained momentum and, and new vigor. Because if you don't perform well, it's motivation to keep doing what you're doing to get better. And if you do perform well, it's going to stoke your fire. But I think it's one of those things where you rub your face in the dirt and keep it there. Um, if this is your instance, I'm talking about that situation in general, that's where my mind goes right away is just commit, do go through the motions and going through the motions often can turn into renewed vigor, but it's not pick a, it's not pick one big thing four months from now. I think it's picking a lot of little things along the, the way is what my, whether it's time trialing, which is fine in the form of it itself, or picking local 5Ks, even if they don't translate much, but they get you out there too. That's when it's like, nope, like this is where we, we just suck it up and go through the motions because we go through that in other areas of our life all the time, in our relationships, in our jobs, and we go through the motions and we find our groove again. You go in a relationship slump and some suddenly you're like, this sucks right now. And then something, you come out of it and it's as better than ever. And you didn't do anything in particular. You just kept at it, right? So like, that's where my head goes, Bracken. Well, and that's the truth. The only way to fix slumps anywhere else, job, relationship, is to pour more effort into it. Yeah. Otherwise, the relationship fractures and you break up or you divorce. Yeah. And so I understand that. And so the final place I get to with someone else is I would say, listen, if you don't have the drive to get out every day, the final piece that will get you there is an accountability partner. And if a verbal or digital one doesn't work, then it has to be an in-person someone to run with, or this is when you hire a coach. This is when you hire a coach and you get out there and you say, hey, I don't care at this moment to train. But if this person, if I pay them and they give me something to train, I'm going to do it just because they're going to know whether I do it or not. Listen up, Bracken. I can make spot. I got room for one more athlete if I, if I had to, you know. Well, so that's the final question. <laughs> do I just try to, you know, say, Ross, every Tuesday and Thursday we're running no matter what. And John DeWitt, I'm going to join you every Wednesday, Friday, no matter what. And then I'm going to hit my own stuff on Monday, Saturday, and that rounds out the week. Or is this the point where I reach out to someone and say, yeah. I've got to go outside my box and I think outside of you too. No, you got, oh, you'd have to go completely outside of your box. Doesn't know you at all. Or knows me enough, but like, but isn't someone I, I would normally be communicating. Like, for example, Rich Ryan comes to mind. I like him. I know him. I trust him, but we don't really have a, we have an in-person friendship, but we don't talk on the phone. We don't text very often. Like sometimes he'll message about shoes or I'll message about a workout, but it's frequent. I think that's about as close as my connection can be to someone. So is it the time to reach out and export my training to someone else? I've never done it because I, you know, selfishly, I just like my training a lot. Yeah. But if I'm not following it, is it worth it? You pose a lot of good questions. And, and this is not just me. This is everyone. Everyone gets to this point. But yeah. at what point do you say, I'm going to throw it at someone else. I need to surround myself with people or a coach or just do I just mush my face in the ground and say, I got myself here. I'm getting myself out of it. Or is it totally dependent on personality? You know which one you are and you know what guardrails you need. Mm -hmm. Well, if you've been training hard for a long time and consistently for a long time, then your answer, I would say you're due for an off week or two and get back to it. If you're the person who is in the boat where you're like kind of just running a couple times a week and no real purpose and you're skipping workouts. Well, your plans go all in no matter what and see if that helps it stick. Then if you're in your boat 
or this other person's boat, it just becomes a lot more layered. And it, you could go back to your why, which you're good at identifying. You could go back to all those external factors. It's like, there's not a right answer, but you pose a lot of good questions and food for thought. I don't feel like I helped at all. I don't know. I Like I said, the, this is kind of like the traveling question. It's It comes down to what your personality is. If you're traveling and you need structure, you, you latch onto structure. If you need freedom to just plug and play, that's what you do. And when you're in the doldrums, it's you find a race, you find a goal, you find a partner, you find a coach, or you find time off. But choosing which you might have to work your way through multiples to get out of a slump. Coach is really motivating for me. God, am I a pleaser that way? I'm sure any you, anybody would be somebody that you respect, that you want to please. I'll work hard for anybody. I can, I'm a great leader, but I'm a great student first. And that's how all great leaders are made, right? And so like, yeah. you probably become a better leader by being a good student. So I don't know. I never know. Maybe I talked to Rich this weekend in Orlando. Oh, is he down there? Yeah, I think he and Megita are going at it. Okay, I like It's going to be a show. I like that. You'll be able to watch it too. Yes, I will. Do we want to move on? Yep, move on to your next one. All right, now I got to pull it up. My screen for lock bracken. All right, this is from uh, CFC SE Lift or Sarah Clift CFC. Um, good one. She says, can you discuss running and plantar fasciitis, specifically rehabbing and returning to running after a major PF flare? I'm sidelined from running for three months per the podiatrist for a bad case of it. Thanks. Love your podcast. I would almost rather have someone break a bone than deal with PF. Plantar fasciitis is tough. It's so unpredictable and it's so nuanced. Some people have it for life. Some people eventually have surgery. Other people just stretching, get rid of it or changing shoes. It's, it's such a, it's such a roller coaster and it's a depressing injury because there's not one prescription. It doesn't matter how bad your injury is. If someone says, here is the prescription, check these boxes and you're back. Plantar fash can defy all the boxes. Mm -hmm. Now I've experienced, I had a year bout of this and it was, um, bad to the point it took me out, took a month off. Um, was running three days a week and that was almost too much. Um, I, this is my very biased and personal story experience and others that I know closely. And uh, Sarah, rest is not the answer because what I'm worried about is you know, I took a month off and two runs back in, I was right where I started a month earlier from taking off. Plantar fasciitis just pops right back up. Rest is not going to fix the reason that is happening, Sarah. It will not. There's a biomechanical or soft tissue flaw that is causing that to happen. So I would tell you to start running as soon as possible is first off. And second, addressing whatever potentially is going on to cause that. And nine out of 10 times, it's your rear chain being a little too tight. And that means where your Achilles and soleus and um, other muscles insert in the calf, loosening up your hamstring, uh, your piriformis, all the muscles in your glute, lower back, that rear chain all yo-yos and feeds into each other. So getting into a rear chain mobility program is huge. You could roll it all you want with a tennis ball or golf ball and it'll break it up temporarily, but won't fix the root cause. So rest isn't going to fix you. I hate to tell you that. I don't believe rest is going to fix you. And I have had such bad luck with podiatrists giving me the same orthotic rest runaround that I don't trust them. I won't go to another one. I'll go see a physical therapist, someone who knows body movement, but podiatrists cost me a thousand bucks for a five minute appointment. And they tell me to wear orthotics and tell me to go home. That's bullshit in my opinion. So if you're a podiatrist out there, prove me wrong. Tell me, you know, there's good ones, but that's where I would start in my opinion, um, rear chain, and then 
try to run as much as you can and manage it as you're running it. And plantar fasciitis is one of those things that will heal while you're using it if you're addressing the main issue. And then the other thing, and I've spoken about this a half a dozen times now, is through rear chain mobility, I had 50% fixed my plantar fasciitis and was back to running through working my rear chain and, and mobility. And then I discovered something called ESWT or shockwave therapy. And in two sessions of that, I've never felt my plantar fasciitis again. You're going to hear me knock on wood. It absolutely cured me in combination with my rehab exercises. I struggled with it for a year. And in two weeks, it went completely away with the combination. So that's what I have to say about that. Um, I think I was thorough. I, th I don't think I have anything else to add. You did a great job. And <laughs> we could just stop right there. Because you identified it, there are two parts of plantar fasci. There's the cause and then there's the damage. And both mm -hmm. have to be addressed. And the damage can be addressed with some sort of manual work. Yes. Some people roll it out. Some people mash it. Some people do your electronic shockwave therapy. Oh, love it. But you also have to address the cause. And the cause almost always stems from your calves. Mm -hmm. Now, the calf can be just the, the interchange system where it's the hamstring or the hip pulling on the calf, which pulls on the, or it can be something in your heel or your Achilles, your soleus. But if you start at the back of your legs, you can't go wrong. Yep. And that's it. You identify what's pulling because it's really just you're pulling too hard on the fascia, on that fascia on there. It's just pulling too hard. And that pulling can only come from behind the fascia above it, which starts at Achilles and moves up the back of your leg. So somewhere in there is pulling too tight. And that can be shoes, that can be stride, that can be actual biomechanical imbalance or something like that. But that's where you start. Shoes, stride, mobility and stretching. And then you have to do something to get rid of all that angry inflammation in there to start with. Yeah, I agree. The people who don't address it, the people who do time off, time on, time off, time on, they never lose it or they get lucky. But remember, yeah, I agree. when you take time off and you don't address the cause, you actually get tighter with time off. Everything gets tighter. And if it doesn't get tighter, it atrophies slightly. And then when you use it, it seizes back up and gets tighter. So you time off has to be tactical time off if you have to take a few days to let inflammation die down. But you have to really address that rear chain. I don't think there's anything more important than that. Yeah. And that's how I did it. I was run. It would be sore, take a day or two off until I could run on it again. I'd limp run until I worked into it, got my run done day or two off. And then suddenly my runs could be a little closer together and a little closer together. And that's exactly, you have to just, I think, get run to run and bide your time in between. Yeah. And treat the underlying cause, whatever that might be. Yeah. Yeah. All right. You got one? Kirk, I do. We had some questions on this swing the hammer hard thing. So the, the, the overarching question is, what is the real difference between a quality day and a hero day? So what, and, and that makes me think that maybe we were unclear or someone didn't fully grasp the connection. But if we're swinging the hammer hard when we swing it, what's the difference between swinging it hard and swinging it for one of those change yourself days? So I think maybe we just hit, and this is the only non-long answer today. I think we can just hit this real quickly. But I, I thought it was it was poignant to get in here and make sure that people understood the difference. Duration or pace. Either you could be over swinging by running an unsustainable pace the inside out sort of like, I'm for sure not capable of holding 70 seconds for my quarters, but damn it, I'm going to do it until I die. 
or it could be, I normally do 12 reps of 400s. Well, today I'm going to do 24 and sustain my, like in volume, you could add it up, extend your long run to something or tackle more vert than you ever have. So I just simplify it and either over speed or duration beyond what you typically would do, notably beyond what you do. That's where I would start. What, what was your answer going to be? Mine was going to be recovery time. Okay. That a big workout, a quality day is something that requires recovery, but it's something you can do on routine. You can do two to three every week and always be required recovered for the next one. It's sustainable in the recovery time. Whereas a hero workout or that when we talk about doing something big, do big things, do something that scares you, you don't recover in two days. You couldn't do it every single week. You certainly couldn't do it twice a week. It's the kind of thing that you can do once a month, every every three to six weeks, and you feel happy to not have to do it for another couple of weeks. There's a yeah. clear recovery component that is not the same. Yeah, that, that would be a good indicator. Yeah. Yeah. If you could do it, if you finish it and think I could do that again in two days and then again in two days, uh, it's not a, it's not a massive workout. It's just a quality workout and we survive off quality days, but we advance and thrive off of the occasional massive day. Yeah. I like the simplicity of that. Like, is this going to be so damaging that I know I'm going to need more than typical recovery? And you should know that when you're done. What was your recovery like after your 50 K race? Well, I took seven days off. Okay. I don't normally take, <laughs> we could stop I, right there. <laughs> I don't normally take seven days off after a quality workout. So that, yeah. then I ran, then I took two more days off. And so, yeah, I mean, that would be a pretty hard hammer swing though, wouldn't it? That would be. When you finished and you got back to coherent, you ate, you drank, you put your feet up for a bit and you thought, when could I do this again? What would your answer have been? Never. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> if you can target a time in the next week, yeah, I could do that again within a, a couple of days. That's a big effort. If you can't really say for sure when you could do it again, that is a really big effort. I said at least a month before I would even ever consider it. So yeah, yeah that's a good, that's a good point. Good way to look at it. And you should have seen, I went uh, side note, but I raced on a Friday and then I took Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday off. And Wednesday I got on the assault bike for the first time. And I couldn't even get my heart rate up past 120 because I was so, like, I felt good. I had coffee, I had pep in my step. I was like, I'm ready to work out. I craved it. I got on there and got working and I was miserable. I was yeah. like, I hate this. I don't want to be doing this. My, I can't even put in enough effort to get my heart rate into like a true recovery zone. That was my sign, clearly. So there's cues that way yeah. too. And that, to be clear, that wasn't a hard thing. That was your muscles were so fatigued. You couldn't push them hard enough to raise your heart up. My, my heart wasn't in it in the sense, like I didn't even want to. And my muscles were okay. just like, as soon as I started pushing, I just felt this like overwhelming fatigue in my whole body that was like, don't do this. So that was pretty obvious. Yeah. But yes. All right. Is there more you wanted to add to that? No, I think it's clear now. Like I said, this was our short question today. Yeah. I got a, a short one too from Matthew okay. Duhan. I think that's an athlete of yours, isn't it? Yes, it is. Very important question for your next Q and A, Kirk. Do you feel like somebody's going behind your back asking me a personal question, Bracken, when they're your athlete? I really do. You feel cheated on? He and I are going to have some words. You'll get it in a second. For your next Q&A, Kirk, what is your go-to lure for big bass? Does that make you feel better? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's acceptable. <laughs> I know him and his, what, his wife, Leah, I believe. They, uh, yeah. They're outdoors people. I like seeing their stuff. Um, go-to lure for big bass is probably the most important question of the day, so I'm going to spend a good half hour on this, folks, so. Hang with, just kidding. I'll make it quick. Uh, 
I'm a soft bait guy, Matt. I'm a pitch and flipper. Give me a nice tube jig or a nice soft weightless worm and slowly let that baby fall and just tickle it a little bit on the way in. It's how you wiggle the worm, Matthew, but I'm a, I'm a weightless worm and tube jig guy nine times out of 10. And I like to throw around a swim bait once in a while if I'm chasing lunkers. We can move on. There you have it, folks. That probably all meant nothing to 99% of our listeners. Positive splits versus negative splits. We've talked a lot about negative splitting, about how almost every single world record from 5K on was done with negative splits, meaning that your pace gets faster and faster as you go. Each mile or each thousand meters or each lap gets progressively faster. The question is, is there ever a time for positive splits? And there's a short answer, and then there's a longer answer here, Kirk. So why don't you start with the, the short answer? Yes. Yes. How's that? Is, is that yeah. the short answer? Yeah. We never say never. Uh, yes would be, if we're talking non-time trialing or we're talking racing, yeah. uh, absolutely. You're, you're racing. You're not time trialing if you're battling others and getting disconnected is a death sentence So if, in most races. So if that means strategically burning hot and positing splitting to keep yourself at the front of a race without question, 10 out of 10 times, that's almost the right answer. So that would be one one caveat right there. Yeah. Are we racing or are we racing? Yeah. And if you are running, like you said, time trial, if you're running for your best possible time within a vacuum, it's almost never good to positive split. Unless there's a lot of hills on the back end of your course or something like that, in which case you're positive splitting time, but not energy. But when you're racing, Everything kind of goes out the window because all that matters is getting to the finish line first, which in theory would be run your fastest possible time, but that's not the way it works. Most of the time it doesn't work that way. Because there is power to the Peloton, the Peloton being the main group of bodies. It just takes significantly less energy to keep your pace in the Peloton than it does to do it on your own. So even if the Peloton's going slow and you realize we can never make up the time we're losing now, and you go out and run your own, they will all, almost always catch you. Every once in a while, a breakaway wins. But racing tactics matter in races. In time trials, everything else matters. But what this kind of opens up is that conversation that I think a lot of people are getting to now that they're spending more time thinking about the nuts and bolts of training is sometimes you have to get out of your watch's way when you race and just put some gutsy performances down. Mm -hmm. It's the single biggest downside of all of our technical talk is you don't want to lose touch with that animal side of you. The primal side that just, I'm going to butt heads with whoever's next to me until they're tired of butting heads with. And that's the racing side of it. Too often you hear someone say, especially in, a, in an off-road race, on the track and on the road, splits still almost always matter. So you have to balance that pack versus splits type deal. Yeah. But as soon as you go off-road, when you hear the question, I just want to know what my sustainable pace is to go out in. I always think you're asking the wrong question. In a sport like trail racing or mountain running or OCR, I just don't see that there's much of a reason to be looking at your pace on your watch unless you hit a certain type of terrain that you're just really, really used to and you know. But more often than not, you have to run off feel and not off pace if you're not on the road or track. This is a little bit of a side tangent, but uh, one of the things that drives me nuts is, and I got a, a dozen athletes who have asked the same question or said the same thing. So sorry if I'm calling you out, but um, well, I ran the course last year in oh. 15 minutes. And so my goal is to beat my time, or I think I can run this course in 45 minutes. And so I want to do that. 
Like you, the courses are never the same back-to-back years. The obstacle placement, the conditions, basing your success off your time is such a mistake, and it's not even it's the most subjective way to do it. Oh, I hear it all the time. I want to beat my time from last year in Chicago, and I think like you are so on the wrong planet. You have no idea. <laughs> Look, even marathoning, which I would say is probably the single most important race to pace correctly is the Mm -hmm. marathon. You Mm -hmm. have to run at the correct pace and effort the whole time. And a 10 degree swing in weather changes races. You'll hear announcers be like, oh, it's, you know, it's 72 degrees today. So of course records are out the window. (laughs) You think 72, that's not even hot, but they understand the way the human body works that every time the degree goes up, you're expending energy cooling your body. And so what you've done on previous years, yeah, it's cool to look at, but it just, you never ever hear a top end trail or mountain racer or OCR racer say, um, well, this race was a bust because I didn't beat last year's time unless <laughs> conditions were exactly the same. They make a big deal about course records in the ultra world, yeah, but it is so dependent on weather that only like one or two or three people in any given race will even go out and base their time off of previous year's times. Yeah, Like you wanted to go out and break a course record and you found out real quickly, the terrain is so terrible this year because of the rain. Like it's not even, who cares? Now we're just back to running off effort. So yeah, yeah. It, it, it's a trend I'd love to see stopped, which is I'm going to choose my pace for an off trail race. Yeah. Well, it's just so prevalent in OCR with, I mean, there's so many variables. The course is never the same and trail racing, they'll replicate courses. And let's say you get a dry fast year and cool temps and you can compare it to a race 10 years ago that had the same conditions. Yeah. Literally that's the only way you can do it. So that was, sorry, that was just my own little personal tangent. I know a few of you listening have done that and said that to me. A lot, a lot of people. Stop it. Stop that crap. Yeah, we may have been too polite to say it in our one-on-one interactions, but we probably should. We don't want to hear you compare your time to a previous year on that course unless conditions are identical and the course is identical. Which doesn't happen in OCR anyways, but maybe in trail racing. Maybe. Yeah. So the only times you can compare are to the other people that day. Mm -hmm. That's it. Or if you're on the the track or the roads, it's different stuff. Track, roads, or identical conditions. Even Western states. Every year the course is the same and every year the weather is the story of it. Like everyone knows the course record. Everyone know what splits they come through at each pass or each checkpoint. But one year it's 90 degrees and another year it's snowing. It's just, you can't compare. Yeah. I, that probably totally distracted from the point at hand, but I just thought it was- No, that, that, that's why I wanted to bring this one up because it opens some side doors, which is we cannot be just confined by the paces we know. Yeah. I don't know what I have to add other than my tangent. What about you? The I mean, do you think there's a time for an off-trail, even a trail racer, an off-road racer to be basing their pacing off of the pace their watch is telling them? Yes. If it is perfectly flat groomed trail with good footing, with no hills or undulation, sure. And when do we see that? Never. But that would be the one exception yeah. I could come up with. And I would say there's one other time. Okay. When you've been on that course before for training. Sure. So Aaron Newell, for example, went out and spent, what, a month at in uh, Tahoe at the Olympic Village last year, prior or two years ago, prior to Worlds. And he ran every single climb and descended every single descent. And in the midst of his big workouts and long runs and interval sessions, he got a pretty good sense of what he should be running. But he didn't look at his watch because it's probably not even 
smart going downhill to look at your watch there, but someone in a situation like that, or if a race is in your backyard and you know what your all out effort up this thousand meter climb or on this section is, then you can take a look at it. Mm -hmm. But if you don't have a backdrop for what your pace means in that moment, you're just spinning your wheels because what happens? You see a pace that's faster than you think. And if you're if you're racing off pace, you think that's not sustainable, I slow down. And if you see a pace that's slower than what you think you're going to be having, it's going to tell you, oh, no, I'm having a bad race. And this pace hurts and it's slower than what I think. It just, it gets in your own head. There's very, very few times where it's good to see. The only time I check is a race, let's say like a Jacksonville, back when it was the super. And coming off the first couple obstacles, I'm checking what, just to see out of curiosity. All right, I'm running 535 here. And later in the race, when we're hitting similar terrain, I look down and see, okay, 6.05. I'm letting the course get to me a little bit. Mm -hmm. So you can track trends on that same terrain in the same race to keep you accountable. But other than that, I don't think I've ever looked at my pace during a, an off-road race. I don't think I ever have once. I, and then people will say, well, it's a flat Spartan race. So there's no elevation, so I can predict my pace. Be like, yeah, well, did, did they you know, till up the cow pasture and you're running over crap. Is there a bunch of sticks and the terrain is a bunch of gopher holes or is it a clean golf course terrain? That makes a 30 second per mile difference right there. So you can't even do it on a flat course, no. especially when it's not on groomed trails. Well, because every time you hit a flat on a trail race or a Spartan race, you have to run it faster than you would normally run a flat. Yeah. Just because that's the only chance you get to open up. Yeah. But if you're totally trashed from a climber or carry, your effort has to be high, but you might not see a fast pace. It's just, I think it's a fool's errand to, to worry about pace if you're not on the road or the track. This should just be a mini PSA within our episode here. If that's how your mind works, just try to reframe it because it doesn't matter. So yes, there's a place for positive splitting and it's in racing. Yeah, not training. Ideally. I mean, look at some of the most successful athletes in our, in our sport. Uh, Killian, for an example. Every race he wins is because he sets a pace that is destructive. He knows it's not sustainable for the people around him or him. He's, his hope is that they give up or break before he does. And so he might limp into the finish. He might be bleeding time the last mile, but he's just bleeding a little bit less. He nicked a vein, they nicked an artery. And that's the only real difference. Everyone's bleeding out. It's just at what rate? So that is a tactical decision to positive split because he controls the race from the front. Yeah. So those are the times for it. But it's the difference between running for time and running for place. It's a good example too. Killian's actually a master that I'm going to hurt myself and I know I'm going to hurt myself, but I'm going to count on you trying to stay with me, hurting you just a little more than it hurts me. And is this the way to run your fastest time on this course? No, but if I've already broken you, it doesn't matter anymore. Yep. Courses where you can get out of sight, early surges, get you out of sight, and they build you gaps that just keep gaining. Those type of situational times, you burn the afterburners a bit. I'm going to read a long one from, uh, I'm going to read the whole thing. This is from Jeremy Whitley. He wrote a long one, and then he wrote a short one, but I think the long one sort of gets there with more understanding. So I'll just read the whole thing. Kirk, is doing much threshold and quality work on the assault bike? Uh, as well as running. Correct me if I'm wrong, but when the legs develop fatigue in the running, the upper body is still somewhat open to deal with me metabolites and fatigue for the lower body. Could training on the assault bike force the body as a whole to handle and deal with fatigue more effectively than running? 
This could mean that when you when you do run at your threshold heart rate zone, your body is better able to handle a process. Um, because for example, if on the assault bike, your entire body was forced to metabolize processes. Is this how the body works? Question mark. Seems somewhat consistent with Kirk's success. Chris Hinshaw's response to Matt Frazier. I don't know what that, that was. And anecdotal experiences. Zone four on the assault feels harder than zone four in running, for example. No, I work in research in cardiovascular and pulmonary disease, not metabolism or endocrinology. So I'm shooting from the hip here. I hope I'm not grossly misrepresenting anything. Sorry, this is long. Kick me in the face. Hope you both had great birthdays. <laughs> um, you're on mute still, Bracken. But I uh, I love this question. I love, like, you know, when we talked about our first Q&A questions, how they were like, what running shoe should I wear? And is rice a good food to eat? And now it's like the nitty gritty. So like, Jeremy, this is a super intelligent question and actually really worth pondering. And I'm going to deflect right away because I just did enough talking. I love questions that expose us mm -hmm. because I, I don't want to speak for you, but I cannot give a definitive answer on this. And I love questions that feed into the, the search for more knowledge and answers. And this is one of them. This is not a question that would normally get posed. This is one of the benefits from having more components to a race. I, I, I believe that triathletes stumbled upon the idea of compromised running through brick workouts. Sure. And they've clearly shown that they can replace volume on feet with volume on bike and in the pool and round out their running game. But you wouldn't have found that out as just a pure runner. And we would never get to this point where someone's talking about the ability to, to deal with the contaminants of exercise through your upper body while allowing your lower body to spin a little more freely by using an assault bike if we hadn't had events and training styles that incorporate all these other styles. So I really, really like this. I have no problem shooting from the hip just like you, Jeremy. I'm gonna I'm gonna just say it like I see it. I'm not PC. I don't dance around red tape, right? I'll just tell you what I think, even if it's completely false. And that is I know what it's like to blow up on the assault bike. I know what it's like to blow up on cross-country skis. I know what it's like to blow up on the rower, and I know what it's like to blow up while running hard. And I will tell you without question, the least painful and costly blow up is running. When I start bleeding time on the assault bike and when it hits or when I'm cross country skiing, I am having my output. When I'm running, I may lose a quarter of it, for example, as far as pacing goes. So perspectively, in theory, what you're saying, like when it hits me in those multifaceted modalities where I'm using my upper and lower, no doubt it hits me harder, which means that my body is forced to metabolize training byproducts in a larger sense because it hits me so hard. It has to be true. So in theory, and I am doing a bit of that with the assault bike work and all of that, and running has gone well for me. So for me, if we're just going to hypothesize, I could see that making a lot of sense. I can't break it down perfectly, but all I know is that running, you think hitting the wall running is hard, folks? Have you ever hit it on the assault bike? Well, let me ask you that question. Bracken knows the answer to that. So I can't speak any further than that other than I think you're onto something. Maybe I'm unknowingly onto something, uh, but that's all I can say about about it confidently. I'll just spitball a little bit here. Yeah. I agree with what you're saying. I believe that the power of compromised running and compromised workouts and full body work is not in your top end speed and it's not in your efficiency as a runner. It's when things start to fray a little bit around the edges. 
when the race gets really bad or when the hills start coming into play or it's really windy or really cold or trying to pick it up at the end of a race when things are starting to seize or cramp. I think that's where those peripheral work, where that peripheral work comes in. It's when you're no longer your light efficient stride and things start to fray. Yep. So if you were just trying to build the fastest person, I don't see any reason to do that. But if you're trying to build well-rounded staying power, that's where I think that type of workout you're talking about helps out. If you hit a headwind, you have to drive differently. I mean, you look at those really light, frail, efficient runners who are just flitting along and some don't use their arms at all, but they can't use their arms at all either. They don't have to, but they can't when called upon. And so they can do everything perfectly until they crack. And when they crack, it's like hero to zero in one second. And I think that the better the athlete is, the less you crack or the less dramatically you crack. I think that historically the best kickers in running, and that means sprinting at the end of a race, are the more athletic runners. As, as long as they can make it to the end of the race, the more tools you have at your disposal, the more muscle fiber you can recruit when it matters. So it's not that being, ath being an athlete, like natural hand-eye coordination doesn't help you sprint at the end of a race, but the fact that you've done multiple things throughout your life, you probably played soccer, you might've played basketball, baseball, you've recruited all these different muscle fibers. And when the going gets really bad and you're fatigued, you can pull from every available source of energy and strength and propulsion to get that final 100, 200 meters. And so, yes, I believe that the nastier the course, the more rolling the course, the things like assault bike work, strength work, those do carry over. From the ability, if you're talking about there's like this balancing act of you have exercise byproducts and dealing with them, if you can shift, if you're at 90-10, 90% is being done by your legs and 10% by your arms, can you shift that to 70-30 because your arms are better at doing that? I don't know if that's how the body works because... I don't believe that your blood's stagnant while you exercise. Well, I just believe that if you are hitting a form of lactate overload in a activity which forces you to shunt blood to more parts of your body and feed actively fatiguing tissue, that there has to be some sort of metabolic benefit to that. It's why all cross-country skiers, if you look at the top 10 VO2 maxes ever recorded in the history of the world, Half of them are cross-country skiers, half of them are rowers, and we have a few runners and bikers in there. But the majority of the top 10, top 100 are probably cross-country skiers and rowers because of, I assume, the demand. So right there alone could tell you something, right? The question is, does that translate to running? That's the question. You know it translates on a physiological level, but those, those great numbers we've seen are not world-class runners. And oftentimes, the highest VO2 max runners are not the champions. Because there is a disconnect there. But if you're already a runner and you raise that ability on the side, worst case scenario, it doesn't hurt you. Mm -hmm. Best case scenario, it helps. Right. It, we could open a whole can of worms. I'm not going to. Only because you know I'm on a schedule today like always. But you, you also have to say, if you're looking at VO2 max, like really what makes a good distance runner and endurance athlete is the percentage of their VO2 max they can hold at lactate threshold and how close that is to their VO2 max and sustaining it, Right. So if we could, in theory, increase our lactate threshold, even on another modality, because it demands more then in theory, it should still translate to an increased lactate threshold tolerance in a runner, I believe. Yeah. And how many times have you heard an announcer say, oh, and he goes to his arms at the end of a yeah. race? 
You hear that. The stride changes from that efficient little, like I'm carrying my arms to I'm driving with my arms. Yeah. It, there's that. There's an actual concept of going to your arms towards the end of a race when you're really trying to propel yourself. And if your arms are frail and useless, or if your arms have been conditioned, that has to give you a leg up. And so that's why, again, I say it matters when things start to fray. If yeah. you're running your race in a vacuum, it might help. It might not, but it won't hurt. But as soon as things start to hit the fan a little bit, any other piece of athleticism you can pull into place, in my mind, it's extra body armor and it's extra propulsion. I agree. I would love to um, I would love to go talk to this young man named Cole Hawker right now. I don't know if you've been watching what Cole Hawker's been up to for Oregon, but uh, holy smokes, talk about a finishing kick and using his upper body. That kid is 19 and is blowing my mind right now. I sat on the assault bike yesterday and watched his – is what uh, Western Conference uh, performances in the track. Oh my God, Bracken, this kid. Anyways, I wonder. He's what not this- a stride you would choose. No, until he drops everyone the last lap. But look at his upper body. He he churns through a oh, race. Dude, that kid is just such an. He's like half my age and kind of my idol right now. So, have you seen what Hobbs Kessler's doing? Nope. What's uh, Hobbs Kessler doing? Hobbs Kessler is a high schooler out of Michigan. Oh, I thought something about him. He is partnered with Nick Willis has taken him under his wings. Nick Willis is, I he might be the person who's broke four the most times in a mile. He's a New Zealand miler and he's an Olympic silver medalist. Uh, he's run a 350 mile, maybe 349 stud, but he's taken this high schooler under his wing. And this kid ran, I think 357 or 356 in a full mile. And then he ran a 340. 1500 outdoors this year, which was the second fastest 1500 ever behind Alan Webb. About a 357 again mile or so, maybe even quicker. Then last week he ran a 334. Oh my, Alan better be shaking in his boots. Which is the fastest 1500 ever for a high schooler and is set the NC, would have set the NCAA 1500 meter record by a 10th or two but he's only in high school. Jesus. So man. he'd he'd be the NCAA record holder in the 1500 and he got the Olympic trials qualifying time and I think he's 17. Where is he out of again? Michigan. Wow. And he's a national level rock climber. <laughs> Keep him out of our sport. <laughs> but it it's a uh, is that rock climbing is there something to his ability to hold his composure? and keep pace at the end. Pierce would argue, no, I would argue it can't hurt. Do you remember the God we're tangenting now, but Chris Zielinski went and represented the U S in the Olympics. He's uh whole held the 10,000 meter record for uh, at least a year or two. Um, and he's about six, one and about a buck 60 or 70. He is the atypical. I mean, you look at him out there. He's a farm boy from, Stevens Point, Wisconsin. He looks like he's 6'5", 200 compared to the other runners out there. He looks like, and he runs, it's just a thing of beauty. He might even be, what, 6'1", 175. I don't know, at national level runner. Yeah. Um, Anyway, he's the one true anomaly. But his plan, you know, in high school, what did he call it? He called it his 100-mile, 100-pound plan. And you know what that was? He ran 100 miles a week, and he hauled 100-pound bales of hay around, stacking bale and hay for local farmers and his family. He was... 100, 100 miles, 100 pound plan. And that's what he did in training every single summer, picking rocks out of farm fields, doing all that, running up the lofts with 100 pound bales of hay and stacking them. And when it came time to go, 
who runs with their upper body and looks smooth. Watch Chris Zielinski run with his upper body and power. He's another guy. His hands come up high in front of his body, and he he churns his upper body when he runs. Jeremy, I like how you got the wheels spinning with this question, brother. And people can – because there's – we don't – as far as I know, we don't have a, a end of the debate scientifically. People will always say, do they do it because it or do they do it despite it? But when you look at some of these outliers, we've had a lot of anomalies, but why was Chris Zielinski the first non-African to break 27 minutes in a 10K? Mm-hmm. Would he really have been the world record holder if he didn't bail hay? Or do, did he do sub-27 because he bailed hay? Like, was that the final little piece that tied together his ability to hang at the end of a 10K and kick at, an, at a world level? It'll remain a mystery. So go watch Cole Hawker. Go watch Hobbs Kessler. Watch what these young kids are doing. And we might be entering another golden age of American mid-distance and distance running. Speaking of Chris Zielinski, I messaged him on his Instagram. I messaged him on his Facebook. I found his coaching email address at his university. Never got a response. It's tough getting people on this podcast. It really is. Even with the Wisconsin connection, huh? Yeah, and he knows who I am. Him and his, his uh, now wife were big fans of The Bachelor, so they watched me, and he'd messaged me a couple times. I just don't think he checks it. Then you need to message her. <laughs> I need to message his wife. Yeah. That's a, that's a good point. All right. When in doubt, message a man's wife. No. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's, our, that's our only takeaway from here. All episode. I remember after I was on the shows, and I felt, felt I made it. Chris Zielinski tweeted, rooting for my homeboy, Kirk, on The Bachelor. And I was like, I've made it. Chris Zielinski tweeted about me. And he was in his Olympic caliber running days. So I thought I was real cool then. That's awesome. Chris, I know you're not listening, but if you are, get back to me. Jabari House, how is the Rugged Maniac Elite different from other OCR Elite Waves? And is it worth it to do? I've never done one. I haven't done a Rugged Maniac since probably 2014. So I don't know. It can't hurt. Worst case scenario, it's going to be a fantastic workout day. You're not going to have the depth of field there. So if that's what you're worried about, go for it. I think that's probably what he's wondering. Yeah. If you're wondering, do I belong in this field? Yes, you do. If you're asking the question about Rugged Maniac Elite, you're you're one of the people that belongs in it. Done. Do you want me to ask my next one real quick? And then you do it. Okay. Fire at me. This is from Jan Philip something. Jan OCR. A question for your next Q&A. Favorite gym exercise for OCR strength for the legs, chest, back, shoulders, arms. So he wants to just say what our favorite movement is for each muscle group. And we'll, we'll just bullet point this one. I'm running five days a week, uh, with two hard efforts, intervals and tempo run. The off days are for indoor climbing. When should I hit the gym for strength training? And what's your advice on that front basically is what he's asking. Or you want to give a, a weighted and an unweighted of each, or do you think he's asking only weighted? Let's do both. So legs, start with the legs. If you had one gym exercise, bang for your buck. Only one. It would either be weighted lunge or a Bulgarian split squat. Mine's hands down Bulgarian split squat, elevated trail leg. Yep. Okay. Without question. Look at us. Good man. Race specific. It works your your glutes hard. It works even your attachment of your hamstring back there and a lot of quad um, engagement. Plus, if you're weighted, you need to really engage your core at the same time to keep your trunk stable. It's beautiful. It's also really good for range of motion. Okay. So let, let's, let's see how in sync we are now. Let's say you have to have a barbell and you only get one exercise. What's it going to be? Well, you could do a Bulgarian split. Yeah, squat. It, we're, we're taking those two out. Let's just say your backup. If you can't have weighted lunge or Bulgarian split squat, what's your next in pecking order? Cause I have two that are vying for the top spot. I'm wondering what your next two would be. You can do a walking lunge or a reverse lunge with a barbell on your back. Correct. Then I would go to a 24 inch box step up single leg with a barbell on my back. I'll just cut the course. Oh, okay. I'll cheat it. 
Yep, but I'd be side positioned. I'm not going to step up on that box from directly behind it. I'm going to step up from the side of it, like that back corner. So it's going to be slightly lateral each side, and I'm going to step up that way. Instead of stepping forward onto the box, I'm stepping almost directly up and slightly lateral from the side position. That's going to make me feel almost like the Bulgarian split squad is. That's why I'm saying that. That's cheating, but I like it. What about you? I would have said front squat or zerker squat. Front squats are good. But I'm going to just say single leg to the death. I mean, if you could only do one motion, it would be something single leg because it's race-specific power driving. Um, Chesty asks, okay, listen, chest doesn't matter. And I have a big one, which is stupid for no reason, but push-ups, done. Yeah, I'd say push-up or bench just because you have to get off the ground in OCR races and burpees. But you could get by without it. Push up in a elevated position, maybe your hands up on boxes so you could go below 90 or parallel. But other than that, that's what I do. Fine, then I'm going to cheat and say burpees. Okay, burpees. Next, back. Pull-ups. No problem. Pull-ups. Uh, if I had to use weight, it's either weighted pull-ups or I really like bent over row because you do need some pull and strength in this sport. But yeah, if I could only do one, it'd be pull-ups. Bent over barbell rows or... Uh... Those are my two favorite. Weighted pull and bent over barbell row. Uh, what about the shoulders? Uh, can I cheat and say dips? Sure. Cause that's a lot of things. Otherwise I like overhead press because I feel like it ties my body together in terms of the ability to brace and tighten everything. I'm going to say hang clean. Okay. And I'm going to say dips because that motion of pushing from your, your waist up over walls. And there's so many obstacles that require that if that's an easy motion, then that's recovery for you. Yeah. And he asked about arms, and I'm not going to address that because arms are irrelevant when it comes I'm going to do it. I'm going to say uh, static or walking farmer's carry. Does that count? It's your arms? Squeeze the heck out of it, Kirk. All right. I'm, I'm cheating on that one. I don't I don't see a need to do arms. I'm going to say pull-ups again. <laughs> I agree with that. Uh, and then he just asked how to place his strength. And we've covered this before on episodes, but um, placing your strength, I, I always like to place. If it really is going to be damaging the day after a quality day yep. or the day of a quality day, just so um, – my quality day isn't hindered too much. Yeah. Legs, I like to try to separate midweek if I can. If not, yeah, day after. My questions are done. Okay. Kirk, got some uh, some, some more. I- I'm hitting all the emotional questions today. Okay. Race anxiety, how to deal with it. Um, specifically because there's a guy I work with. I'm not going to name him just in case, because I didn't ask him if I could talk about this. Sure. But he is someone who has underperformed. He's leaving his best races and workouts and he's underperformed on race day. Now there are, there are some physical issues he runs into on some race days, but a lot of it has to do with between the ears and it's terrible night of sleep before terrible feeling during warm up, feeling just sluggish in a shell of yourself during the race. And it all stems from race anxiety. However, this past week he jumped in two races One of them, he jumped in an OCR race after everyone had gone because he was working the event and he just time trialed it and he ran the fastest time of the day against guys he he goes back and forth with normally. And he said he got halfway through and realized, you know, I'm feeling good. I think I'm going to really rev it the second half. And then he jumped in a road race and did the same thing, something he didn't care about. I think it was a half marathon. Got to like five or six miles out for like a tempo and realized, I think I'm just going to sink my teeth in and go. And both times he said, he feels like he, he was running at like his max aerobic anaerobic capabilities in the second half without any of the crazy blow up that he usually has. So the ability to go in with no stress and to roll into the race rather than get out and blow up tense 
showed him that the only thing missing is the mindset on race day. So mm-hmm. what do you do to alleviate race anxiety so that you can do the things you're capable of doing and stay out of your own way? How do, how do you change race day so it's not up on this pedestal of anxiety? It's a million dollar question. It is. Um, here's the thing that's tough about this question is that we romanticize and fantasize and fanboy and fangirl this sport where we follow it on social media, we look up to the pros, we we know everything about it. It's like being a fan of professional football and then being able to go play a game. Mm-hmm. Of course you're going to be in shell shock every time you show up to the start line because you've just built this all up as OCR is a celebrity to you, right? And so sometimes, and I hate to say it. And not just OCR. Like but you road race, 5K, 10K, marathon, you can run the exact thing your idols run. Correct. I And so sometimes, this is a weird answer for this, but unplugging from the whole thing itself and just focusing on you and doing your thing. You didn't know everybody who was showing up to the start line of the road race. You didn't know anybody, what the deal was, what the course record was, what everything was going on. All you did was just show up and you didn't have time to build it up in your mind, but from following the nuances of that race or that sport. And so sometimes I think we get so caught up. I use this analogy with a client of mine, but like she freezes, she cries at start lines. She's so anxious and miserable. She can't even get herself to function. And it's because OCR and racing has become a celebrity to her. She's fantasized over it for years. She follows it. She knows everything. And then she shows up to the start line. It's like meeting a celebrity for the first time that you've watched on TV and you don't even know what to say. And you're an idiot. You're like, oh my God, I was such an idiot when I met Tom Cruise. It's like the same thing that people experience when they like tow a start line because all they do is get all this media in them all the time, all the time that of course they're going to be nervous. They're meeting their celebrity every time they touch the damn start line. And so like trying to dis, I know it seems like a weird take, but like trying to disconnect from that can be super, super, super helpful. Quit gobbling up social media. Quit seeing what other people are doing on Strava. Quit and just show up. And now you're not meeting your celebrity. You're just meeting Jim down the street when you show up to the start line. And that's a different ball game. If that makes any sense. I don't know if that made any sense or I sound like an idiot. It does. I can't tell you how many races I won early on in my career because other people didn't think they could beat me. Mm. I'd make a move and they'd say, well, there's what's going to happen. And they wouldn't go with, and I'd know full well coming in, like I'm coming, I haven't run in two weeks or, or I've seen what they've run and I I'm, they're actually more fit than I am. They just don't know yet. They can beat me. And there's so many times someone in a race, if you know, they go past you and you think, yep, this is what's bound to happen. But if you didn't know them, you'd think, who is this Yahoo? I I'm not going to give an inch to them. So sometimes knowing less or faking confidence is huge. But when when it's really overriding your your life and if unplugging doesn't help because you have a flight booked and it's like you can't get the race off your mind, what do you think about the idea of coming in tired, fatigued from training, about saying you don't get to taper because you tapering drives you crazy? Well, is that part of the equation for this human or not? That's hard to say. Yeah, if if you every single week you go hard on Wednesday and you run really hard on Saturday, or you hit Thursday as a tempo and you run Saturday and you nail your interval workout. What if you just try one time placing a quality day on Wednesday or Thursday on race week or the day before going out and running four by four hundred? Something that's gonna fatigue you a little bit, but it's not gonna actually damage you and just say, All right, that that wipes away my anxiety. I'm tired. I did a big workout. 
doesn't matter now. I'm just going to go out there and run this thing smooth and see what happens. That For some people, that might be the case. If You might put too much stress on yourself by trying to perfect your build. And not having an enough outlet through your training that week. So, of course, oh. you're anxious. But it, but if you're talking like, I can't sleep, like there's some nervous. I mean, our body runs on nerves, right? The nervous mm-hmm. system component. And if your adrenal glands are firing for four days straight leading up to the race and your thyroid function is all out of whack and you're not sleeping, that, that translates to cellular energy too. So, it's like finding a way to just, I think it's calming the nervous system more than the body yeah. is how I feel. And the, and the hormonal system. So experiment but i find that the whole building the the race and race organization we gobble up social media so much these days or so much that a lot of times we just let ourselves get worked up oh yeah i have to stay off social media prior because i don't want to see everyone at the event venue i don't want to see them posting things or predictions because every time it happens i get this little jolt of adrenaline me too this jolt of chemical in my body and i always have to think like all right go think just calm down this not yet I was just thinking, nope, not yet. I don't, I don't get to get have adrenaline yet. I don't get nerves yet. I have to wait. And then when I start my warm up, oh, I can get a little chill of it then. And I, no, no, don't, no, not yet, not yet. Save it. And it takes years sometimes. You know, these last two um, races I ran were trail races, and I'm going to say just trail races because I haven't built them up in my mind. And all week I was at home. I was overrun with work. I had to get five days of work done in four, and I was so distracted that I didn't even have a second to think about it. Staying distracted instead of time on your hands the week of a race, like I need to recover and lay on the couch. That is a death sentence for your mind. Mm -hmm. So I stayed super busy, barely got work done by Friday night, woke up the next morning, got to business because that's what I did. I didn't have to put any ounce of emotional energy into it beforehand. And I felt great in both efforts. And then Spartan, I travel the whole day before. I think about it on the plane. I wake up early. My adrenaline's going. I get to the venue. There's energy. By the time I hit the race, sure, I'm a little dull. And so staying busy and distracted and not stagnancy is is not good the week of a race. Your training deload is going to take care of that. So I say, like, I need to focus and meditate and find my chi and get ready to go. Like, I would say, screw that. Like, stay busy. It's one of the reasons I initially started flying in. Friday afternoon before a race. Because the longer you're there, the more anxious you were? Yep. The longer that process is. Getting there a day early, I thought would be like decompress and be relaxed. I didn't know what to do with myself other than think. Mm-hmm. Those races where it's like, oh man, I, I'm not taking off work this afternoon. I'm getting to the airport <laughs> at 4 p.m. and I'm going to arrive at 7 p.m. and then I'm going to get to the hotel, shake out and get to sleep. There's a little bit of stress about that, but it's about the travel. Yep. And then I'm asleep and I'm awake and well, nothing left to do but to warm up. There, It, it was a crutch to get myself away from myself. Yep. I would love to keep dwelling on it, but I know you have one more and I'm on a window here. So okay. what do you got? Last can one. We, can we address it in four minutes? I'm going to say it out loud and then you decide. Okay. Choosing realistic goals. There was a message. It was actually someone tattling on someone else. And I felt like I was talking to myself because I I run into this with clients and I'm sure you do too. It was, I've got this friend who just keeps saying he's going to do X goal throughout this year and next year he's going to do this and it's totally unrealistic. So where do I draw the line between supporting him and having that hard talk with them? But the way I took it was, we need to address this with people is how do you do that with yourself? You can't ever crush someone's dreams, right? Because there's always the example of someone who defies the odds. But someone saying, I'm going to win a world championship next year and you've never broke 25 minutes in a 5K, it's probably not realistic. So what do you do? 
as a coach and as an athlete to ensure that you are a dreamer, but you are setting realistic, attainable goals. You know, quiet I'm being? Yeah. That's a tough one, Bracken. Because you don't want to lie to someone, but you do not want to be the person who they use in a story of this person told me I'd never accomplish it. And just to spite them, I did it. Or it broke me. I never came back to the sport because someone said, you know what? You're never going to be good. You can't be that person, but you don't want to support delusions. So I have a few athletes. Yep. At the moment, for sure. Um, And I'm guessing they don't know who they are because I I approve of the dream big, by the way. I have nothing wrong with that. Um, First of all, step one is always support. So the answer is yes, you can. And I believe you can. And I don't know unless it's so outlandish, which sometimes they are. But the the most important step is step two. And step two is you can't attain one large, lofty, outlandish goal without attaining small ones before that. And so with that person, I say, that's awesome. Let's let's turn you into a 15 minute 5k or even though you're a 20 minute 5k now but like let's set something before that we need to set something sooner mm-hmm. so what you need to do with that person is you need to say hey that's great it's a stretch you know it's a stretch that's why it's a big goal but let's look at x first and let's try to find some stepping stones along the way because otherwise the fall down from realizing you're not going to reach your goal and all you work towards is one thing it's going to be really really hard so that's where setting stepping stones along the way coming up with the C goal, the B goal, and then the A goal to get there. So that's where I start. Yes, that's exactly it. And I don't just set the stepping stone goals like from there. I make them choose the prove it type deal, Mm. which I'm sure is what you're saying too. Like, let's say your goal is to to win the Olympic 10,000 meter on the track. That is fantastic. I believe you can because it's a a race. There's rounds. People get there tired. Anything can happen. It's going to be tactical. But- you take a look at the past 10 years of winners and you find out what their PRs were at the time when they won. And then we know we have to hit those PRs. So every single winner was able to run 355 or under in a mile, even though it's a 10K, you need to have that speed. They were all able to run a half marathon in under 60 minutes. All right. So now we got those two things. You got to be a sub 60 half marathoner with the speed of a 355 miler. They were all able to close their final lap in under 55 seconds under fatigue. So now you got three things. Those are the three things you have to be able to hit to know you can do it. And now you work back from there. All right. If I need to be sub 60 in the half marathon, well, a year out, I better be sub 63. And two years out, I better be sub 66. So if you get to two years out and you're still at 75 minutes, you've just proved to yourself that your goal is not attainable. No one had to tell you no. They just had to tell you if this, then that. Mm-hmm. So I love your sequential stepping stone. You have to be able to hit some things along the way to unlock the next level. You're saying the same thing I am in a different way, and I like it. I like what you're saying. Yeah, and, and you said it too. You have to set those stepping stones. Let's get to A in order to get to Z. Well, you know, we have dreamers, and then we have realists, right? And I'm a realist, and then we have dreamers. And damn it, I wish I was a dreamer sometimes more than I am. And I'm a dreamer, Kirk, and you know that about me. Uh-huh. So, so the realist in me, you don't squash dreams, but then you help the dreamer come down to earth and say, Great. Let's figure it out. But first we need to accomplish X, Y, and Z to confirm that this is possible. And so, you know, but I admire the dreamer. So you got to dream. You can't do anything big in life without dreaming, but it's got to be sequential. So to follow that out, if you got to be sub 60 and you got to be sub 355, you start with time trials. And Mm -hmm. for some people that might be enough. 
You might go out and run an hour and a half in your half marathon and think, okay, I'm not cutting a half hour off. Maybe my goal is to qualify for the Olympics. Yeah. And then a year later, when you're still at 120, it's like, okay, I'd like to win my age group at the next big race. But mm. maybe they surprise you. And two years in, they're at 65 minutes. And suddenly it's like, holy crap, this person might have been right. Yeah. Good thing I supported them from the start. That's true. If you want to beat Cole Hawker, you're going to have to be running 54 seconds for that last quarter in a 5K. So Yes, you are. Think about that, sir. Um, we could keep going on that one. I feel good about what we just said. Do you want to add anything to that? No, I think for everyone out there who is a dreamer, if you don't know you're a dreamer, you might be a dreamer. You might be the person that people are <laughs> thinking, yeah, that's foolish. So regardless of whether you think you're a dreamer or not, write down your goals if you haven't already, and then think, all right, to get there, what do I need to be able to hit? Yeah. And that starts your process of realism. Yeah, I agree with that. It's a really good question though, actually. We've some really good ones. To, I've actually really enjoyed talking a lot of these things out. Yeah. Yeah. People are getting down to it. Like always. Yes, they are. You, I love watching the evolution of people's thought process because many of these names are names who messaged us early on. Yep. Jeremy Whitley, for example, he's been he's been contributing to the show since month one. Yep. So we've even got to watch the way he thinks about his training. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, quick. Uh, sorry about uh, the no episode earlier this week. I hope all you understand. You understand life, holiday. We're running this deal. You know, this is a, a jerry-rigged backyard operation. And then two, I just wanted to say one last thank you. Uh, we got up to 420 ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. And when I asked you guys, we were roughly at like 340. So we got like 80 or more people stepping up to the plate. So just again, a sincere thank you for taking the time to do that. Um, all the numbers finally settled. because So it takes it a couple days for it to register on Apple Podcasts. And uh, they finally all tallied up and uh, there we are. So thank you. And that means a lot. So that's all I wanted to say to wrap things up today. Yeah, we love the support. We wouldn't be doing it if people weren't responding in some way. And seeing that response gives us the fuel to keep going. Kirk, I may be in a, in a slump training. I'm not in a slump podcasting. Nah, we're rolling, man. And we'll be back next week with two for you, like always. And I'll have a race to chat about. Michelle, you better be ready to throw down this weekend, girl. Mm-hmm.